I wanted a movie to be about feelings and not about text and story because that's what movies are. If you want just story and text, like pick up a book. Movies are about feelings. Welcome to the season two premiere of Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. For those of you returning to the show, thank you for your patience during our hiatus. We took some time to work out season two and get caught up with both our new guests and their work. There's a lot that goes into bringing you up close and personal with these incredibly talented artists, from booking and research to recording and editing. So we took some time to recharge our batteries, watch a ton of terrifying, nerve-shattering films, and set on an incredible lineup for our sophomore season. And those of you who are new to the show, thank you for joining us as we continue to explore the works and lives of the people that help us to find illumination in darkness. Without further delay, I am proud to present to you our first episode of season two of Spill Your Guts. Few mediums can capture the abstract and often contradictory nature of dream logic the way film can, particularly genre film. Anyone familiar with the works of David Lynch knows this well. And to define dream logic, perhaps Lynch summed it up best when he said, Cinema can say abstract things. It can say things that are difficult to say with words. And sometimes, if I'm lucky, ideas come from those types of things in the middle of the story. Things that are difficult to say with words. Occasionally, a filmmaker comes along who takes all the preconceptions we have about our beloved genre and flips them on their head. By ditching the safety nets we're used to, the tropes, the narrative beats, in this case, the score, well, all bets are off. We're now in the hands of someone who wants to show us things we may not understand, but if we can be open to it and connect with the film on its own terms, the results can be nerve-shattering. Which is exactly what has happened with the new film Skinamarink. I sat down to watch this movie knowing next to nothing about its premise or style. I just knew that its eerie poster, a child sitting on the floor, his back to us, in a blue-tinged dark hallway, the image upside down, and the title which touched on childhood memories of sing-song that shouldn't be unsettling, but is when placed in this context, had me more than a little intrigued. This isn't a film you watch. It's a film you surrender to. The film's creator is Kyle Edward Ball. I highly encourage all our listeners to watch the film. It's available now on Shudder before listening to this discussion with Kyle. Skinamarink is an experience you want to have with as little knowledge of its machinations as possible. Kyle and I explore his love of 70s cinema, both genre and otherwise, why a filmmaker's influences might not come from genre filmmakers, the impact having his movie leaked online before its release had on the film, and making a movie that is deliberately loaded with contradictions. So, turn off the lights and throw in some public domain 1930s cartoons. And let's immerse ourselves in the upside-down world of Skinamarink with Kyle Edward Ball.
Hey, Kyle. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I had a good sleep, and that completely changes everything <laughs> in my like. It it literally does. Like when I've had a bad sleep, sleep, I'm like, I don't have an injury, and like if I have a good sleep, I'm like, I can do, I can do anything. And also yeah. because I, um, fairly recently finally got like some some money from from the movie like a fairly big payout not like that's like, nice not like huge like when you see the two million box like that's not yeah, going to yeah, but you're like right. that's but not I even got, yeah <laughs> yeah but i got a reasonable payout that i could have i could finally go on amazon and buy some blackout curtains which i've wanted forever so then which doesn't sound like it pardon are they helping I not they come on Wednesday. Oh, you haven't gotten them yet. Okay. Yeah. I can relate to that. I have I'm like a terrible insomniac and I it's just I have the worst time sleeping. Um Yeah. So it's it's sort of I I'm content if I get, you know, 5 hours of sleep in a night. That's Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's just I have trouble shutting off the old noggin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's pills for that, I'm told. Um uh <laughs> So you, I guess you're kind of getting onto the tail end now of a, of a pretty long kind of press tour and such, right? Like talking to all kinds of different, doing all kinds of interviews and stuff. Yeah, it's and it's been amazing. So Kate at IFC Films, um, so she dealt with all the PR and there was other people obviously helping too, but she was like um, amazing at PR. Like if... Let's say I had booked a day of interviews and said, like, sorry, I I have another meeting with a production company that I can't get out of, can reschedule, she would be able to do it. Um, she was good at, like, the public relations aspect of it, too. Like, one time for an interview, it was a typed one. And I sent her the questions back and I had did a follow-up question when it was late and I wasn't feeling good. And the, the question, the, my answer comes off kind of snarky <laughs> and she's like, can I suggest an edit? And I'm like, yeah, you can just take that sentence out, whatever. <laughs> so she's, she's great and in la at the event she was amazing it was it was awesome now i mean skin and is your first feature right so yeah this is your first time doing you know the, the the press kind of thing have you enjoyed it or do you find it is it kind of out of your comfort zone or what how, how has it been for you so it isn't really out of my comfort zone like i'm i'm fairly comfortable with it but it's been a learning experience because like I had no idea how much press people do for for these things. And I felt like we got a ton just because the movie is talked about so much. And also I'm in that weird middle ground where I'm not like famous enough that it's like I'm not approachable, but my movie is big enough so like every everyone at least thinks they can approach me mm -hmm. and for the most part that's true um but yeah, just, 
Yeah, and like, but also, <laughs> like, one thing is like, there's only so many different questions you can ask about yeah. a movie, right? So yeah. a lot of the same questions come up, and after a while, it's like you have a memorized script and after a while you even get better at giving your spiel so yeah i mean i think it's, it's people ask me about you know because i interview people you know all week every week like how do i keep how do i go about trying to sort of make it interesting for the the guest you know people who have done you know press now for in some cases I, we have guests who've been doing press tours and stuff for 30 40 50 years like yeah. and how do i sort of try to make it interesting for them and i'm like well you really you you just for me i think all you can do as as a host and as an interviewer is try to just because i'm not doing a pr style interview because it's this is a more informal thing it, it's more like if we were sitting in a coffee shop chatting i try to bring that kind of a vibe to it and not sort of the more formalized approach that you get when you get you know festival tour PR which is just like because mm -hmm. it's you know or when I go to like conventions and I see you know Robert England or whoever up there answering the same questions they've answered at every convention panel they've ever done and I'm like oh my god yeah <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing my first um horror convention I don't think I can say which one yet because it hasn't been formally announced and I think okay. they want to make a big but it's going to be in the summer and I'm really excited about that so yeah have you have you like attended one before no i like oh, no? i don't go out that much <laughs> you're an inside person um yeah they're fun yeah they're fun i mean like not all of them, but uh but um, a lot of them are like it's 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 cool to kind of be among your people you know it's kind of and horror fans are insane like they make yeah. they make trekkies look like casual observers because there's <laughs> so many things just yeah. the amount you can talk about the different people who played jason like that's right. so much and, and that's just one little thing right like, yeah now when did you sort of first start to develop a passion for for the horror genre and for genre films um so horror it was kindergarten actually because i had gotten into collecting but not reading goosebumps books because i was already a fan of the tv show goosebumps and are you afraid of the dark so that was an excellent introduction to kid-friendly horror yeah and then um after that i moved on to more mature stuff so the cbc had a Hitchcock marathon when I was like seven or eight. And that's where I saw the birds in Psycho for the first time. And also my parents were fairly liberal with what horror they would let us watch. Like, because I think there was a tacit understanding that like me and my sister were, were I, I think relatively precocious for our age. And my parents intuited, like they understand this is fake they like from things like goosebumps and are you afraid of the dark things like nightmare on elm street are not that big of a step up yeah um so and at, like you can't argue with results right so um <laughs> so yeah then i moved on to stuff like the shining and then i explored it more and more as i grew older and then in my teen years I had gotten more just broadly into movies in general. So I, I 
like watched all the old greats like kurosawa ozu etc yeah yeah is your sister younger or older than you she's like not quite an irish twin she's just under two years older than me okay yeah Mm. so you're it's like my sister's two years older than me as well and it's funny because like i had the same thing with my parents like at first it was sort of entry-level horror I'm a little older than you, so like that my thing was like the the video for Thriller, the Michael Jackson song. I was obsessed with oh, that. Oh yeah. I watched that. I saw that on YTV over. on a Halloween. I think I saw it on YTV on the same Halloween that I saw Poltergeist for the first time. That so for people who are listening that are not Canadian, YTV is like a like a channel for young people, kids yeah. up to like teen, right? I would say. Is it still around? Is, is YTV still Oh yeah, around? yeah. It's it's yeah, I think and what would you compare it to in this like maybe Disney Channel ish? Like, Nickelodeon, maybe? Nickelodeon, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd say Nickelodeon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they had like the PJs, like these hosts who would like talk to you about Yeah. It young cool young stuff for young people and stuff yeah the pjs uh, were their fun term for like vjs like video yeah, jockeys right yeah. like would yeah you so you had the pjs then because i know they don't do that anymore but no they still i'm pretty they, sure they still do that yeah like oh. last time i checked like they had yeah carlos and sugar the girl who did the voice of Rini on sailor Moon. like I'm i'm sure that's that must still be a thing. Who is your favorite PJ? Oh, well, Phil and AJ. PJ Fresh. Because, yeah. yeah, like, like they were, like, I hadn't hit puberty yet, but I think they were proto, like, oh, I kind of have a crush on these guys. Like, <laughs> Yeah. PJ Fresh Phil was awesome. And there was this girl named PJ Rocking Shan or something like that. She's there was my favorite one. The other one I go back and look at now because it's so fucking weird and crazy. Is there was this one called PGK PG Katie's Farm? Did you ever see that? Yeah, and she had a little thing. I have a story about that too. So when I was a little kid, because American culture is so entrenched in Canadian television, I assumed all just all television was from America because most of it was. And then I was watching her show. And she would read fan mail and she got a letter from this kid who said, I'm moving to America, so I won't be able to watch your show anymore. And she's like, oh, that's such a shame. You won't be able to watch YTV because you're and then that was a oh, this is a Canadian show. Some television that I like is from Canada. I'd like. Yeah, yeah. there was a show, a cartoon I used to watch called The Raccoons. And it yeah, I, I remember when I realized that they didn't have it in the States. I thought it was like, you know, a huge deal. I mean, to me it was. So I just assumed that it was an American thing. But of course, when I look at it now, it's pretty Canadian. It's like, yeah, it's, (laughs) it's a forest. And yeah. yeah. And if you look at other content too, like it was available in the States, but didn't take off like sailor moon was on. So a big thing, sailor moon was put on after school, like the prime time for, watching it and in the states i think it was on at like 9 p.m or something so it really took off in canada in a way that it didn't quite take off in the united states now like it was a huge thing here yeah oh yeah massive massive and it's funny because Mm -hmm. i was i was thinking about because of the title of the movie obviously 
Mm-hmm. For me, it, it immediately the connection is Sherlos and Bram, which I'm yeah. which is Canadian, correct? Yeah, they're they're Canadian. Yeah. So, does that title have you noticed it has a different connotation for Americans than it does for Canadians? Because Canadians are immediately connected to Sherlos and Bram. I would say it, not as much as you think, because I found out the Elephant Show was, I think, played on American I television. Think it, was, it, yeah. it didn't take up take off as much and that was a common thing for children's entertainment like that was one of the markets that canadians like did have cross-bordering yeah um but like that show paw patrol that kids fucking love now is canadian yeah like oh i didn't know paw patrol was yeah yeah i have a friend so getting to this age where it's like my friends are having kids and I saw my friend Kyle, it was our first, like, the pandemic's over, I'm going to visit you. And, or maybe it was before that, I don't know. But, so, he picked me up, we went to get food, and then we got to his place, and it's like, okay, before we start drinking and hanging out, we have to watch Paw Patrol. <laughs> With my son. Did you like it? Yeah, it was fine. Yeah. I actually, I have two nieces and they're six and eight now. But so I had a lot of exposure to things like um, there's this show they used to watch. What was it called? It was uh, it was like a very musical show. Fuck, what was the name of it? Um, Yo Gabba Gabba? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they because they would have celebrities on like they yeah. had shiny toy guns and Sarah Silverman. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I, whenever they wanted to watch that, I was it, like... I hate to admit this because it's probably weird, but I actually had fun watching it with them because the songs were catchy and there was celebrity. Yeah, I, like Tony Hawk would be on it, and I'd be like, "Yeah, do any of these kids know who Tony Hawk is?" Like, it, well, it, they oh, do now. Yeah, now they right? do. Yeah, because he's taught them a song or something. Um, but they, I remember when Shiny Toy Guns was on, they had to change because they'll say the name, and sometimes for the bands too. But for the Shiny Toy Guns, they had to change it to the Shinies because. Yeah, when the killers were on, they just said their names. The commit dies. <laughs> yeah, the killers, and they were like, Brandon, da, 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 and they just said the names of all the band members. They wouldn't say the killers. Um, but, Are you yeah. familiar with Roblox? No. Okay, so there's this on there's this version of Minecraft called Roblox that looks different, and like they're kind of more Lego-y. But it's very popular with like really small children. Okay. And it's funny because on it you can't swear and you can't even say certain words like murder or kill. So a funny thing about it is in the chats, kids have had to find funny ways around saying these words and they're very clever. So there's, I've never played Roblox in my life. Um, but there's a subreddit called R Commit Die, which is a way of saying kill or murder that kids have figured out. <laughs> um, and it's all screen caps of these like like kids like saying these ridiculous things to each other. It's yeah. like this unintentionally hilarious thing. Yeah. <laughs> R Commit Die. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like Minecraft, all that stuff is I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's, it's, uh, I'm too old for that, I guess. 
I don't know anything. Did you see the um, Minecraft trailer of Skinamarink? Someone did a uh, no. crafter, crafter. Yes, I was like so honored. Some kid in Edmonton actually did like a Minecraft oh, version. So you yeah. love shit like that when 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 fans of the movie are doing things like that. That's oh my god, right. yeah, it's amazing. The memes, even like, and usually I'm so sensitive. I don't like hearing people shit on the movie. But even, like, the exception is, like, some of the memes that shit on the movie. Like, I, I like, think they're If you're so at least going to be funny about it, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And, yeah. like, there's this horror, there's this Facebook shit posting group. I think it's called The Nightmare on Meme Street. And I was big into it um, forever. And then people started commenting on the movie and making memes about the movie but then uh, one sad thing about this whole thing is i feel like i i can't be a part of horror fan spaces anymore like it's just impossible because like there's a like i've kind of moved to the other side of that and b like there's like a lot of hate for not necessarily me but for my movie and there's even some hate just for me like but so nightmare on meme street the moderator um he'll do a review of a movie and he, he'll he'll have a actually very diplomatic these are pros these are cons so he did a review of the movie but he watched it during the day like with the lights on or something and clearly he had watched a pirated copy and he gave it four out of ten and like to his credit like he said oh maybe i should give it a second try when i'm really in the mood and but like that really hurt like like okay it's if people watched a pirated copy but loved it that feels different like they're but, like, if you're the moderator of the most influential horror shit posting group, <laughs> you watch a pirated version. Because, like, I doubt he reached out to, like, IFC and said, hey, I run a shit posting group. Can I get a screener? And they would yeah. share. Yeah. But, like, and say all that, like, it just, it, it kind of hurts. So I had to leave the group. Well, I think it's different, right? Like when you become a filmmaker and you're and you know what goes into making a film and the amount of people mm -hmm. that contribute. Like I remember early in my career, I think it was Romero who told me this, but I could be wrong. But I think it, I think it was Romero who said to me, "It's just as much work to make a shitty movie as it is to make a good movie." So just keep that. Oh in yeah. Just keep that in mind when you like rip on someone's movie is like they probably still worked really hard on it. So if they take it personally, that's why, because they yeah. didn't set out. Nobody sets out to make a shitty movie and they still worked hard on it. So I think it's like, you know, to audiences love to just as much as they love to, to champion something. They like to tear it down, especially if it's different. And I think for a movie like yeah. Sam Rank, that isn't. And we're and we're gonna we're gonna delve into this a bit, but you know it, it is not a three act structure movie. It is not a typical narrative. It it actually is kind of like it it like not in the like, way that people expect though. You know, yeah, not, not not in the way that like you know your favorite scream sequel is or something like. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's fair. And like to be again, 
to the members of that shit posting group, like their number one rule is if we have a, if it's a horror movie, we shit on it. Right. So again, it wasn't the memes or anything that hurt. It was just that the moderator basically watched a pirated copy and gave it four out of 10, which I know is super sensitive and silly, but no, I I remember I, um, Steve Kostansky, the director of psycho Gorman, I was talking to him Mm -hmm. on the show and he was talking about, you know, sort of that, you 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 know that he was given advice and he knew going into like when his movie was coming out like some people aren't gonna like it and you know that's just part of the game and you get a tough skin he was like it sucks you want everybody to like it you do he was like yeah (laughs) you know and i I think that's i think maybe as as you get older as a filmmaker you start to care less that's kind of what i've noticed is the older guys are like i don't give a fuck but when they were younger they did care so I don't know. Maybe it's like just a thing of getting to the point where you're like, you know, that as hard as you try, you're never going to please everybody. I mean, who who makes a movie that that everyone likes? I don't really know if there's such a. Movie. Yeah, well, I'd say the Daniels came very close, like with everything everywhere else. Like I yeah. like a part of me is so but I know like there's a very people. tiny minority who are like, eh. Know, yeah, like, I was gonna say I know a couple yeah. of people that didn't like it, but I think they're the but they're also the, the two people I'm thinking of, and I hope they're not listening. Um yeah. are, are are so those people who like if everyone, everyone likes a thing, yeah, they have to be like, oh, it's so overrated. And I'm like, you always say that about anything that's fun. Yeah. I, I did you I loved it. Did you were you a fan? Oh my god, I love I fucking loved it. I and like I knew go it was so hyped for me and I'm like I'm gonna be disappointed and I watched it at home I have like have a decent setup big screen soundbar blah 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 but it was so hyped up for me I'm like I'm gonna be just and I it wasn't I was so I loved it this is every there's so many like for a long time I'd seen Marvel movies and thought what if they just did this about a regular person and they knocked it out of the park. I instantly felt when she says to her daughter, like, you never, you never call anymore. Like, cause she, the whole movie, it's the daughter's thing. Like you don't, um, t- like talk about grandma, about grandpa, about how I'm gay and blah, blah, blah. And you feel for the daughter. And then at the end, she's like, you never call anymore. You, you, you don't, when you do, it's only when you want something. <laughs> like, I was like, oh. I know. My husband yeah. and I were like roller coaster. We were laughing. We were crying. Yeah. Like, it's just, you know, and it was so fun as like a lifelong horror fantasy. Jamie Lee Curtis get to do something. Oh, so she's, she's so fucking stupidly fun. Yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> so funny. And then, the, oh, yeah, that was another, the part where she's like vaping, like teaching. Yeah. Michelle how so to vape cute. like that was it's so sad because it's like in another universe you two are a couple yeah I know With fucking hot dog hands <laughs> there's a guy I, I can't remember his name right now he's a he's a he's a gay like stand-up comic and like youtube personality and he did a thing about the hot dog finger community and how this is the first movie to represent the hot dog community, <laughs> and it, it's a very funny bit um um, what was the first movie you remember seeing where you like legit, you know, had bad dreams from it or like really actually affected you in a way that where you were like, holy shit, like that really nailed me. Um, As far as content, like let's like let's step out of movies and go back to Goosebumps. Fucking Night of the Living Dummy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Like he's 
And he was kind of almost like a proto, like this will get kids ready for Freddy. Yeah. Because he's f- funny and like, What's his right? Name? And Huckles or something? Slappy. Slappy, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Slappy, fuck, slappy. And yeah. then, as far as movies, ones that viscerally... So The Shining did creep me out. Like, room, the Room 237 scene, for, forget about it. <laughs> but um, for one that really hit me, like, I have a whole life story revolving around... I only saw bits and pieces of The Exorcist on A&E one day couldn't watch the whole thing my parents told me about the mythos of it like oh when this movie came out there was people fainting blah 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 and had this fear of the devil for a while and I was not raised religious at all and like I kept just thinking about it and yeah yeah, The Exorcist is probably when I ask people, I ask every guest the first movie was that scared the shit out of them. And I would say The Exorcist is probably 80% of what people's so, response is. Can I just say my take on why The Exorcist is so powerful is we've seen it copied a million times. And over the years, people have done good things about reinventing that and making it better, the demonic stuff. But a lot of demonic possession movies of the past two decades, they're also so like eye-rolly and sh- juvenile. Mm-hmm. And The Exorcist is so matter-of-fact. It's so yeah. realistic. If you take just take out the scenes that happen in the bedroom, it's a movie about a woman whose daughter is very sick and yeah. a priest that like helps her through it. Right. Yeah. And it's the characters are so mature about things, the like everything it's, that's why it works. It's hyper realistic. Yeah. When, I mean, it's shot by, you know, it's one of the seventies kind of, you know, gritty, raw film freak and, you know, that whole mm-hmm. era of French connection. Yeah. Like to, yeah. he brought that street vibe to it that I think gives it, uh, the, the like the look at the, the, the characters in it, like, the, you know, Ellen Burstyn's character, for example, is so, it's such a dramatic, real performance. It's not a horror movie performance. Yeah. Like, ah, like she's, this is a woman who's like tortured watching her daughter, literally going through hell and like I yeah the context of the actors um you know max von Sydow, all of the the other actors yeah who play it totally straight they don't act like they're doing horror movie acting i don't know how to explain that but if you watch some movies and i don't want to name them because i don't want to shit on movies but yeah you look at a lot of the kind of shiny hollywood movies a lot of like you know some of the blumhouse stuff whatever there's a certain yeah. style of acting that you see in horror movies and I'm like, and they're playing it like a drama in the same way yeah. that Michael Caine in the Muppets Christmas plays it like right, there's yeah. no Muppets. He play, and that's why that movie works. He's playing it like they're like yeah, a stage version of yeah. a Christmas yeah. Carol. That's yeah. why, and that's why The Exorcist works. They're playing it like a drama, like a movie, like Sophie's Choice or something, right? Like I love that you just brought up Muppet Christmas Carol in this podcast. Yeah. I never get the chance to talk about that movie on this show, but I, <laughs> I love that movie. I love that movie. It's so great. It's a be- beautiful picture. It really is. Yeah, I mean, mm. it, and the rats are just great comic relief. Yeah. Um. So. 
who were some of the filmmakers that you sort of grafted onto as a young guy? Like when you started getting into the filmmaking process, who were some of the filmmakers that first grabbed your attention? So Kubrick, Hitchcock, Tarantino. Tarantino always stood out on my mind too, because there were some names I always growing up thought like, you know, the directors don't get as much fame or attention as they should. Right. right. And, but Tarantino was one when I was like a kid where you would see his name as if he was the star, right? Yeah. And everyone else was secondary. So, and then other people like John Waters, same thing, right? Um, And then as far as more into craft, Ozu, like the way his movies are just so quiet, but powerful, right? And Kurosawa, and then experimental people like Brackage, right? Like Brackage, uh, I was so lucky that we had an amazing video store in Edmonton, alternative video spot that just had every like everything, right? And also a great um, like art house, cinema house, Metro Cinema, which actually when I was a kid was at a different location and like, but yeah, so. Like, it's interesting to me because, like, you're not picking people like, you know, the the typical masters of horror, Carpenter, Romero. Oh, I, like, don't get me. I'm just going, (laughs) because there's so many, right? Like, Carpenter, I I love and probably would be in my top 10, right? But, or, like, Wes Craven, who, if you look at it, a friend, a, like, layperson, but big horror fan said, you know, if you look at it, he kind of, like typified all three decades he did with the 70s the exploitation era so what's the um last last door on the left and hills have eyes 80s he started the this is the kit like the slasher thing like he didn't invent it but really with nightmare on elm street and then 90s with the slasher reinvention right with scream so yeah, he's pretty, and like, he he was, I think, too, as a, a, a director, um, and I think all the great horror directors are like this. If you watch a Wes Craven movie, you know it's a Wes Craven movie. If you watch a Carpenter yeah. movie, you know it's a Carpenter movie. Carpenter especially. Especially, right? like, yeah. Carpenter, it's just down to the font, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, like, like you're talking about, John has such authorship of his films because they say John Carpenter's Carpenters. whatever. Yeah, whereas like you know, I think that some directors now, I, I don't know that sense of authorship. I think is is a little lesser for for a lot of the films I've been seeing lately. Where I'm like, nobody puts their name in front of their movie like that. Nobody kind of steps well, up. I, I like. I think Ari Aster, like even from his debut, yeah, but he's was, like, oh, this he is doesn't an... seem to want to stick with horror, right? He's like kind of gradually moving away from horror. It's like he kind of is. Like, I wonder, do you think his next one's not going to be horror at all? I don't know. It doesn't seem to me like I'm Tony Timpo, the, the former editor of Fangoria, was talking about this, and he was like, I think the big difference between modern genre filmmakers is like when you talk about the like the quote-unquote masters of horror carpenter romero craven you know toby hooper or Stuart. oh Hooper. and romero's my man he could have just made night of the living dead and dawn of the dead and just walked away like for those two he is the king yeah i well I, dawn of the dead is anyone who listens to this show knows my obsession with that movie i think it's like a perfect Again, 
of a like perfect move. Those were perfect. Like this is the sixties, right? Vietnam, da 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 da. And Dawn of the Dead is like there's like shades of network before network came out of that yeah. movie. It's such yeah. a strongly this is the seventies take on the zombie, and again, very matter of fact about things. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, you look at the start of that movie that opens in the newsroom and shit's hitting the fan and everybody's losing. Yeah. You know, and just like it's the chaos that's sort of seeping in and, you know, just the tone of the, the ambivalence people are already developing it's, towards the It's violence. Watergate yeah, and totally. and um, riots and oil yeah. embargo and airline jackings. It's, it's the 70s. Like Romero is... You know, I, I knew George as a person and, and, and one of the things about George is a very political person. And it, so that's mm-hmm. in his work. So it's it's interesting that you're, you're sort of picking up on how much of that was in George's oh. films, because I think your, your, your casual moviegoer would go, oh, they're zombie movies. But if you really look at those movies, the zombies are just they're entirely metaphors. They're not. Yeah. They're not characters the way that Freddy Krueger or Jason is. They're just mm-hmm. walking metaphor. The people are always the real danger in Romero's movies, right? It's always the people but who fuck up and get themselves. I will up. say, like, like casual film go- are way brighter than we give them credit for. Like the things my boyfriend says, who's by no means a cinephile like me, but loves horror. Yeah. Like his, we talk. We always it always comes up when we a movie a horror movie from the seventies. We talk about oh this is so seventies. This is so the time right like yeah. yeah. Is that your favorite era of of of, of genre seventies? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would I would say potentially movies in general. And coming back to people like Ari Aster and like John, so I saw this article. That said, oh, if you talk to Eggers or Ari Aster and they named all their masters, they wouldn't say John Carpenter or Wes yeah. Craven. And I think, okay, like I just realized, okay, yeah, I, I skipped over those guys, but I wouldn't be surprised if they brought up Wes Craven or like I would be very surprised if they didn't love those guys as well. It's just they're taking cinema as a whole. Well, I think, right? yeah, and I think horror fans in particular get very focused on their people, right? So, yeah, if you're a filmmaker, like, you know, for me, when I make, when I've made films and people have asked me, well, who are your influences? And I'll be like, well, I was really thinking about this scene from, you know, E.T. And they're like, E.T., that's not a horror movie. I'm like, why do you think that everything, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make Evil Dead. A hundred other filmmakers have tried to make Evil Dead. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so you pull from all these things that are just part of your cinema lexicon, and they, they aren't all going to be horror. Um, they're just going to yeah. be things that made an impression on you or, or visual, from a visual grammar standpoint that you think are impactful. Um, and, like, that goes back for all the horror... Ma- like, you think John Carpenter was just watching Roger Corman? No. no like, he was, he was like... Fox movies, for fuck's sake. Yeah, right? Like... Yeah. So... No, it's totally true. Um, So, at what point in your life do you kind of remember making a decision, like, hey, I think I want to make movies for a living? Like, when... Oh, did my... Did like, s- seven and maybe even... But, like, I think at some point when my age was single digits, my parents explained what a director was. And I said, I want to do that. And my mom claims that may have even been earlier than that. Um, We were looking through for finding props 
for Skinnamarink. My mom had a box of keepsakes that we looked through to find toys that we could use for the movie. A lot of the toys you see in the movie, those were literally me and my sister's toys. Um, and I found she had kept not all of it, but like keepsakes of like these, this is their homework and assignments from like K to like uh grade six. And there was one thing from, I think grade one or two, where I said I wanted to be a movie director. Wow. Yeah. That's funny. So. Cause it's when I was a kid, there wasn't, dvds right at all so mm. there wasn't there wasn't this kind of access to the filmmaking process yeah. that young people have now and i think you know it's the it's so fortunate for you and also like if you wanted to like i was shooting stuff with my dad's like camcorder you know like super eight yeah. as, a, as a kid but like i didn't really get how movies were made until i think when i was like 10 um somebody is a like a garage sale or something i got a book that had like behind the scenes stuff oh, in the making cool. of, of yeah raiders of the lost ark and i was like so that's how they do all this shit and i was amazed and it was like now i have to know everything about this and i remember because at first i thought i wanted to be an actor that seemed like the because that's what you mm-hmm. see right when you're a kid yeah you see the actor and i was like oh well that's what i'll do um when i was very young my so my grandparents only visited once they live in on lived in they've since passed in ontario and so they i think i was maybe four or five they took the family to my first uh imax movie at the at the time it was called the edmonton space and science center and my first IMAX movie was about like movie magic, like special effects. Oh, cool! It was it was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I I got a hold of this documentary about it was about Tom Savini when I was mm. young, like I don't know, again like eight or nine, and and I remember watching that, but I didn't understand the way like because he was talking about how so he was in Vietnam and he was talking about how he saw like real gore. And how, like, how that translated into when he was making these things, that there was a part of him processing sort of, you know, PTSD by by recreating oh. this and how triggering that could be. And and so I think that was too heavy for me at the time because I just wanted to be like, well, how did they make heads explode? And and he was talking about uh, all that. But it's we always saw stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, but I, you know, it's, it was amazing to me to see. I always loved magic. And so movies to me and still to this day, that's all that movies are to me is a magic trick. It's a yeah. sleight of hand. So as a kid, I was, and I still am, I'm still a sucker for a good magic trick, but it's like, you know, to me, I love the ability to sort of, you know, use all the different tricks in a director's sort of toolbox to kind of get the honest to look over here while you're changing something over here. So, yeah. There's, you know there's I mean? <laughs> weird ways they overlap as far as even things like misdirection. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about skin and rank because I think mm-hmm. one of the things to me that, so I, I, I caught sort of a little bit of buzz about the movie, but then I stopped it. I was like, I don't want to hear any more about this movie because I'm interested. And I've learned, I've kind of taught myself to do that now. I'm not really a big, even though I run a, podcast i'm not really that into social media i don't like i just i hate spoilers so i don't Mm. watch trailers like so if i catch like if my favorite is to talk to my other friends who do who are filmmakers themselves and 
they recommend shit and I watch it. And it's mm-hmm. the best way to me because I like to be surprised. I, so I heard yeah. stuff about Skimmer Inc. And like, I remember the, there was an article about something about a screener leaking or something. And you mentioned that earlier. There was, and mm. I was like, oh, that's that shit. Like, it wasn't a, it wasn't a screener. We were playing at a European festival that had an online portion. And the service that was providing the online portion, they had a track record of other festivals, some of them bigger than the, the one we were playing at, and said we hadn't had any piracy issues before. And so the festival reasonably thought, okay, it's secure, right? And then, but the thing is, if someone's, if you have anything online, if someone's determined enough, they can find a way to pirate it, right? So, yeah. Like, so how, how, long before you were planning to actually release the film or hit festivals and stuff did that did the movie get leaked so we had premiered at fantasia and from fantasia in in, i think it was july 25th and from fantasia we had had a very positive response and shortly after that jonathan barkin uh one of our executive producers had sent it to um, Shutter, and they fell in love with it right away. That's when they wanted it to be a Shutter original. Okay, and so it wasn't that long after Fantasia. Um, so about sometime in August, I think I had a Zoom meeting with them, maybe early September. They said, "Yes, we want to make it a Shutter original. We love this movie. We don't know how big the theatrical will be." But regardless, we want to make it a Shutter original. And we want to release 2023 Halloween, the coveted Halloween release, right? Yeah. Um, so that made me so happy because I'm like, this is great. So the movie will play a few European festivals. Maybe I'll have to do a few interviews, but it'll all be quiet. And during this winter, I can start writing my follow up, right? And then we played at the festival in Europe in October, like around Halloween, actually. And that's when it got leaked and it just kept blowing up, blowing up, blowing up. And it sucked, too, because previously, if people had seen it at festivals or, or said anything nice about it on Twitter, I would always like it and retweet it. And then once it leaked, I felt like I couldn't engage because if I did engage... Um, I would be leading more people to seek out the pirated copy. Right. Yeah. Um, and also right after it happened, Shutter didn't find out right away. I and so for there was this three week period right around Halloween where I was having a meltdown because I thought it would put the Shutter deal in jeopardy. Yeah. So it was really, really bad, and also a weird thing for me to navigate because it's hard when there's someone that you think is is there's all these people that like love your movie send you fan art send you personal anecdotes about the movie who don't know the whole picture right like it's they they don't know you have a shutter deal also i couldn't say there's a shutter deal Mm -hmm. um i couldn't say on twitter hey i'm having a meltdown um (laughs) 
there was Twitter was fights like, about it. Was that sort of what it was like for you at the time? Were you like, I, you know, is this going to fuck up my whole release for my film? Like, yeah, I thought, I thought there was a part of me that thought like, what if Shudder rips up the deal because of yeah, this, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm just some guy, right? And on top of that, like, people were fighting about it online. And that put me in a weird position too. Like, this film critic had... um posted here's where you can watch the movie right and he i I don't think he knew about the shutter deal and like yes a film critic isn't supposed to do that you mean he posted link to a pirated version of the movie yeah and no i know but here's the thing he loved the movie so there's a very common humanity between me and him if he loved something that was so personal so i can't hate him and he maybe thought he was and okay i get he's on the other side of this he should have known better i can't hate this guy and he got a lot of hate and like i don't i didn't want him to get a lot i don't want anyone who loves my movie to get any hate right <laughs> yeah there was a whole thing and then there was other film critics who had seen it like legitimate screeners who were having fights with this guy and like if, like there was a whole Twitter controversy about it before the movie was even out. And then about three weeks after, and like, I'm not exaggerating when I said I had a meltdown, like I was crying. I was upset. I'm an emotional person. I cried during fucking Oreo commercials. So <laughs> I do. So, um, Three weeks in, Jonathan Barkin had emailed me and said, I spoke with Shudder, don't worry about it. They're not going to drop the movie. Um, And they'll email you shortly. And then Sam at Shudder said, we know about the leak, don't worry. It sucks, but shit happens. And also, like, Shudder knew that it was going to play at an online festival and said, yeah, that's fine, right? Like, what we just came out of COVID. We've had a billion things play on. Um, so they said, yes, we love the movie and want to support it and give it the best life that, and let's make lemonade out of lemons. And boy, did we, right? I don't think we would have played in 800 theaters if we hadn't had the piracy and the buzz and the that Cause you had this weird thing yeah. where like on the one level you have your movie leak, which is a shitty situation and not what you want. But on the other yeah. level, like, I don't know if it was just well spun or how you guys did it, but it almost seems like it, it worked in your favor on this film because it, it started I would say really early on. Really reasonably as far as from my perspective and my feelings it was a completely mixed blessing and, right. and a or no blessing in disguise, but it's hard to know at the time. And also one weird thing is I've become all of a sudden a role model for young filmmakers. And I don't want people to think, okay, well, Look at Skinnamarink. He got a shutter deal. And it's like, yeah, but they signed on the dotted line way before that, right? So don't take this as a case example of, oh, I can leak my movie and I'll get yeah. exactly what Skinnamarink gets, right? Yeah. That might not be the case. That might actually be the case for your movie. I don't know, right? Probably not something you want to bank on, though. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I just want to say, if you pirated my movie and loved it, like, thank you. I don't at all 
Like, I, I love you just as much as anyone else who sees the movie. Well, it was funny because when I first reached out to you to come do the show, um, I didn't know it wasn't playing at all anywhere theatrically in Canada. So my my assumption was that I would be able to go and see it in the theater. But then I realized, uh-huh. oh, wait, it's only playing in the States. And I was like, no, it's still it's still playing like at a handful of places across Canada. I couldn't find it anywhere, but I'm I'm like I live in Port. I shouldn't say where I live. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I live outside of Toronto, ways enough that yeah, nowhere without like a two hour drive. Well, we did have a handful. Like we did play Kingston, I think Hamilton, Ottawa, but I- those were like 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 three or four screenings at the art house, and that's okay. it. The only. Yeah. We did play a handful of like in Toronto. We played, what's the big art house there? The Review. The Review, and we we did actually have a legit like like a like Cineplex Scotiabank Theater in the Burbs in in Toronto too. So I was like, well, I've got to see it before I talk to him. So I when so I remember I messaged like, what's it coming out? And and a friend of mine was like, I think you could pirate it actually, but I don't. Like yeah. I'm a filmmaker. I do not pirate movies. <laughs> okay. So I was like, I can't do that. It's I'd like especially to- like an indie. Although the movie's not really indie anymore, right? Like well, you got bought by. Can you make it for like fucking peanuts? Yeah. Yeah. Like so, it just I don't know. It's just a thing for me where like I know what goes into making a movie. I want yeah. I want people to support the industry. So mm-hmm. if and I run a fucking horror podcast and I'm a horror filmmaker. Yeah. I'm pirating movies. I'm a douchebag at that point, really. Yeah. So I just so I just wait like, I'll wait till it's out on shutter. That's you know, it was a little different because like when I'm interviewing people who have done like 20 movies, I have to get well ahead of it. But in, you know, to talk to you, it's like it's one movie. I'll have time to watch mm-hmm. it, make my questions, and then we can talk. So. Awesome. <laughs> so I didn't pirate your movie, but but that's how I kind of started to become aware that there had been this whole piracy thing around it. But it was just interesting because the more I looked at that a bit, because I could read about that without spoiling what the movie was about. Um mm. At first, it was funny because when I when I heard the title, and you know, I was going to oh, it's going to be like a, like a Chucky type movie or something like that, maybe because it's like it has yeah. a whimsical title. Of course, it's nothing like that, but um, mm-hmm. but that's the the joy of not watching trailers or anything. Um, did you? Uh, so going back a bit, you have a YouTube channel called Bite Size Nightmares, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, fairly kind of experimental and just sort of, you know, to me, it looks like you're just trying different things and, and you know, using your camera to try out, you know, what's it like if I do this? How do I do that? It, it, was that sort of super informative for you and sort of building your sort of visual style as a filmmaker? Oh, absolutely. It was the best sandbox a horror filmmaker could ask for. People were telling me this is my nightmare. So number one, I'm by accident learning what scares people or what their subconscious thinks scares them. And I'm also learning how to tell a story with limited actors and no resources, right? So I developed this whole kind of style around that. And then um, the most common nightmare people would comment would be i'm in my house i'm a little kid my parents are missing there's a monster that kept coming up interesting uh i think it's a universal part of the human experience i think we all have that dream when we're a little kid yeah around a certain age and then um 
so that went into kind of the bones of the the plot of the movie but people so people ask me what inspired this and that's the canned answer like oh people kept commenting but like the more i say it i realize you know there's a lot that's maybe 10-15% of what inspired the movie. Like there's a lot, like every, and lots of different things you can't necessarily articulate. This is why yeah. I did this because it's all a Michigas and your it's head. Funny, you probably have not heard this reading of it, but now that I've seen the film, like I watched, when I watched the movie afterwards, I was sitting there thinking about, I was like, what is the movie that, that there was a movie that kind of was, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a Canadian movie called The Gate. You ever seen The Gate? The Gate? Yeah. No. So it's about these two little kids and their parents. Um, they're they're a babysitter comes to take care of them. Their parents are going on a quick on a short trip, and then they uncover this this gateway under this tree in their backyard that lets like these demons out. And for like a oh. night, they're trapped in like this kind of void, this hellish void where where things are happening. And there's their parents. You know, the demons tell them that they killed their parents, and they see their parents die in front of them. Oh. It's a PG movie. It stars a kid version of Steven Dorff. And, um, so Steven Dorff, when he was a kid, you, yeah. 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 Just like the way we're like when you said that, I'm like, they, they got a kid. Who's the kid. Version. The kid version of Steven Dorff. No actual Steven Dorff, but child Steven Dorff. Yeah. I'm not mm. sure why I said that in the most bizarre way possible. Um, <laughs> but th- the movie is essentially about these two kids trapped in this house that are seeing and having their hallucinating things and their parents, uh, they, they're they told by the, the demons that tricked them into thinking their parents are dead. And oh. so I was like, even though it's it's a much more traditionally filmed movie, you know, in terms of the, the style of coverage and all that kind of stuff, I kept thinking about that movie watching this because I saw that movie as a kid and had this fear of being home alone and having demons tell me that my parents had died in a plane crash and you're going to be alone forever. And that movie triggered that for me. And I was like, you, this movie is going to do that to a bunch of little kids. You're going to traumatize. (laughs) How do you feel about that? How do you feel about causing trauma to a bunch of children out there in the world? (laughs) I feel good. It's everything a horror filmmaker wants. I think so. I think so. Because um, horror is a, a safe, like a roller coaster, a safe way for us to enjoy being scared. I, I'm afraid of so much in life, and horror has been a nice way for me to process my fear of the broader world. Yeah, catharsis. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You did a short film called Heck, which is basically was the, the sort of precursor to to making Skin and Rank. Now, I I've, was it a proof of concept thing or not? Because yeah, what a hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. Um. I said okay. I gotta do a feature while I'm still a young filmmaker, but I have a limited window of banking on being a young filmmaker. If I keep putting this off, then I'm just gonna be a filmmaker, right? So let's do a proof of concept. I don't know if I'm ready to make a feature. Also, I want to make a really weird feature and it helps to have this to prove to others and to myself that I can do that. And let's make the proof of concept different enough from the feature that they can stand alone apart. And so Heck is a different story to uh skinnamarink in most ways there's no monster which is a big thing 
Um, the reasons that the kid is in the house is are implied to, like very strongly implied to be different and sad and yeah. Um, but so I finished heck. I was ha super happy with how it turned out. It didn't quite get a huge response. But I was happy with it and thought, okay, now I can do my feature. So I did. Uh, the pandemic was a blessing in disguise because I was laid off from my job and like thought, okay, I can collect employment insurance maybe for a bit, not too long because at some point there's a moral quandary of, oh, well, I am kind of working, making a movie. Yeah. But regardless, I thought, okay, I can turn this into making a movie, crowdfund, and that's what I did. Now, when you shot Heck because it was sort of a proof of concept and because, you know, it's different, but it certainly has a lot of similarities to what ended up being Skimmering. The there, TV is the same TV in both of them. Like, well, they're, yeah. So they're in some cases, yeah. there's even the same props. Um, yeah. Was there things, though, that you that you attempted or thought you would try in heck that, you, that you're like, mm, that doesn't work, and therefore they didn't end up in Skin and Marine? Uh, not that much, but there was stuff that I thought, okay, for the short film because I, I'm not ready or don't have the budget, I'll do this. But when I get to the feature, I'll do this. So um, in the feature, I'll hire, hire real child actors to play the parts. And heck, it'll just be all POV. And I'll put my voice through a voice synthesizer to change my voice to sound like a kid um, and, and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah. But, but, for, yeah. So, you know, as it turns out, like, you may you make a proof of concept for some people who may not know this. Often the proof of concept is what you're going to use to go out and pitch getting the money to make your movie. Was that, was that how it happened here? You, you used Yeah, that? like, Heck was featured prominently throughout all our grant applications, which we did not get any grants for. And, like, I was super heartbroken when we didn't get any grants grants like i put a lot into applying That's a complicated for process grants. for sure been there yeah there was this one grant where my dop had previously successfully gotten the grant and also after that was a jury member on the board to approve grants so he even vetted vetted our grant application and i did i dotted every i crossed every t to get it like there is not much more I could have done to get that grant application I had a literal successful grant applicant who was also a jury member vet our grant application I had everything that was optional I I did like there was an option get letters of recommendation from other filmmakers I did that like some fairly big names in Edmonton wrote letters saying here's blah 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 and still i didn't get the grant and was like kind of pissed like i'm like what more do i need to do um <laughs> and then and interestingly this organization that i had applied for so so many alberta based and edmonton based organizations have trumpeted the success of the movie interestingly this provincial organization has been completely silent um 
so yeah um the, but the good thing about these grant applications was a lot of this material that we had made, we were able to transfer to a crowdfund. Right. So that 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 was a big thing. Like we didn't have to rewrite a lot of stuff. And heck was featured prominently through the grant applications. All everything we had sent out. Here's our proof of concept short. Watch the proof of concept short if you like. We were able to take images for visual representation of it. Yeah. And um, in terms of writing, like the, the writing process on this project, you know, like it's, it's, to me, it's, I was looking, I was thinking, how do you write a film that is so driven by atmosphere and mood and an, an emotional response to the, a composition? Like, what does a script look like for something like this? Like, so how did you write this? Like, what did the, what did the script yeah. look like for this movie? So the script looked it was a traditional 96 page script, but there are parts where it's interior living room. We are looking at the ceiling or we're looking at the television. Kevin and Kaylee are off screen and then that's described in the script. And then we have the dialogue between Kevin and Kaylee. So, and literally the a, a lot of the script is that, or even the parts where we just see their feet. It's written like we see their feet we don't see the rest of them. They walk off screen. It's described very similarly in the script to what we see on screen. And as far as selling the atmosphere, um, or even the parts with subtitles, it says we hear a whisper, but we don't quite hear it. And then here it is literally subtitle, character, da -da -da, dialogue. And then for selling the atmosphere, that was coming back to the proof of concept. Okay, right. for the atmosphere of the movie, watch the proof of concept. Like, did did you have anyone who just read the script who was like, this is just a bunch of fucking shots of the ceiling? And no, <laughs> because the hard thing is, it's like pulling teeth. So it's hard to get people to read your script, even if yeah. you're your they friends who are also filmmakers. Yeah, they want to see a one page or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially the people I sent to were there through the whole crowdfund. They had all that, right? right? Yeah. Or no, no, no. They read the script before the crowdfund. But it was like pulling teeth because it's hard to get your friends to read 100 pages. Provide feedback. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, read like 100 pages because it's a technical document. It's not an easy read. No, it's not right? like reading a novel. Yeah. Yeah. And then. When they did read it, they would provide a little bit of feedback, but it's hard to tell, like, are they just being nice, right? And, like, other things, like, my executive producer, Edmund Rotea, I don't know 100% if this movie is 100% his taste before he saw it, right? So, it was, it, it's hard getting your friends to provide comprehensive feedback especially to people who aren't used to reading scripts outside yeah. of right like reading it as their job right like a yeah. producer who all day they read scripts and then 
a lot of the people who that is their job all day to read scripts, they have jaded perspectives on on scripts. Well, I was right? just, that's so. what I was thinking. I was thinking of like, you know, those like have you ever had coverage done on one of your scripts where it goes to some guy and he provides coverage? No, I've it's horrible because <laughs> it's like, yeah, no context to it. It's just some guy reads your thing and it's like all about, you know, like into some distributors, if they're deciding if they're going to finance your movie or whatever send your script yeah. off for coverage. And like, I've been on both sides of it. I've been the guy providing coverage and I've had coverage done on my script. And I was just thinking of like, if someone got the script for Skinnamarink with none of the context around it, like how that would read, you know what I mean? When there's so yeah. much of it that is about, you know, the, the the sort of the the framing the composition the sound design like it's hard to get that into a script sometimes and uh you know how would that translate you can if you get a really passionate good producer yeah who has seen your previous body of work if you have that luxury some people will say okay take you can send them a, like in the email okay imagine it like this right yeah. right and i am being courted by a production company right now who i can't name who the like the one of the guys at it we talk of one mind about about this stuff like he gets all my references blah 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 and Another thing is even sending rough cuts, right? Now, granted, when I sent rough cuts to people, it was right around the holidays. So people were busy, you know, having a life and having Christmas and like, but um, there was one guy, our associate producer, and he was associate producer because he donated $250 to the crowdfund. <laughs> um he had never read the script so he was relatively going in blind watching the rough cut he provided amazing feedback like perfect like a like two-page thing okay so here's the general here are specifics and he was not super nice that i thought oh you're just blowing smoke up my ass but not super mean that it's like you're intentionally straw manning the movie right, right like yes. you think you're simon cowell right like he was just <laughs> provided and he also even had stuff like this i'm not a hundred percent sure on how i feel because i read the synopsis right yeah uh, so get a second opinion on this that and the other thing so right yeah. and i have to ask this because my Google search didn't yield a response that I was satisfied with. Why did you call it Skin and Marine? Oh, um, I saw it in a movie, Elizabeth Taylor movie. When I saw it in that movie, I thought, oh, I thought that was a Sharon Lois and Bram original. It's not, right? No, it's from a 1901 from... Broadway play. Yeah, and like even that, I think before that, it was like a folk song or some shit. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Then it's stuck in my head. And I'm like, it's sticking in my head. Child, nonsense word, great working title. And the working title stuck. Okay. I, I sort of figured it was something like that. Because I think people that, people have asked me on many different occasions that why I've named certain things a certain thing. And sometimes it is the most abstract out there. Because the title doesn't yeah. have to be like, it's a thing to help sell a movie more than it is anything else. So, yeah. you know, like it, it really doesn't necessarily have to convey that much. I mean, I think of like, you know, a title like the silence of the lambs. It sounds provocative. Yeah. It sounds cool. But when that movie came yeah. out, people were like, what the fuck is, is this movie about? Like, it's nothing. Yeah. Like, so it's, it's funny how a title can do that. Cause 
I think with the tight like Skinnamarink, like it is, you're gonna get that reaction. You're gonna get people if they know the song, they're going. Oh, and that was intentional, right? Yeah, like, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, I was expecting, and I was uh, always hoping for a positive thing. Like, I don't want. I I never wanted Sharon. I forget that one of them has passed away, but the um two surviving members of Sharon Lois and Bram. I I think it's Sharon and Bram. I think Lois had passed. I thought, okay, eventually they're going to find out about the movie. And I believe, like, I would assume maybe they had, right? Like, people must have sent, hey, like, are you involved in this? They've, they haven't, I thought they would reach out to me and say, hey, like, hopefully positive. Like, hey, so you like the song? Blah, blah, blah. Because <laughs> yeah. I do. I do. My mother used to sing that song to me yep. to calm me down. Yeah. I, we were, we took our cat camping. Big mistake, right? But <laughs> my boyfriend has this thing like, oh, he thinks the cats are depressed because they never see more than the four corners of our apartment. But like, they're kind of evolved to be okay. Yeah, with I, I, I would with never that. take a cat camping. That's yeah. But yeah, so the whole car ride, our cat was like upset and meowing, and I sang him Skinnamarink to calm him down, like my mother did to me, and it did calm him down. That song's personal to me. But sure, they haven't reached out to me, and I hope eventually they are. You disappointed? Did they, they, they haven't? Not really disappointed, just like scared. Like I hope they're not taking this as a slight against them, because it's certainly yeah. not a slight against. There's nothing them, in the movie no. that like slags off the song or something. It just—it's not referenced at all no. in the movie, right? Like all—all all it's done is generate maybe a few more people are going to search that word and maybe discover Sharon Lewis and Bram. So I don't. Yeah. I, I, and I, I intentionally spelled it differently right. so that kids wouldn't find, you know, the the movie by accident. So which is still gonna happen. But um Yeah. Like. <laughs> um were you ever like because I'm thinking like I was what so when I was watching the movie the second time, kind of you know, I'd seen it once, I kind of knew, okay, this is this is what this is, and this this is not a this is not a, a slasher movie or like because again, remember I went in pretty blind, so the second time I kind of was prepared for that. So I was sort of more ready for what the movie is and what the tone of the movie is. And then the fact that it's more of the way I described it, my husband had the perfect word for it. He said, the whole movie is like this trance trance like state until you end up in this nebulous sort of oblivion. And I was like, that's a perfect way to describe the progression of the movie is your sort of trances you until all of a sudden you realize that you're like in the upside down world. Um, and, uh, I, but I was like thinking about it from the standpoint of like when you were pitching it or even when you were showing it, like, did you ever have the concern that because it wasn't sort of the more prototype style of filmmaking that people are used to in horror that's so popular right now that you might have a harder time selling it or getting people to watch it? Um, I did. And there was even a time there's a local film producer slash distributor who actually has, he's one of, cause he's always one of the producers. He's a producer at another movie that played at Fantasia. That's getting a large response or, or, or is going to get a large release fairly shortly. 
Um, I don't want to say the movie because um, the director of that movie, like I, I, I don't want any of the negativity I feel towards this particular producer to come over to her movie or her. Right. Okay. I'm, I haven't seen the movie. I bet it's awesome. But there's a local horror distributor who um, lives in Edmonton very, very nicely. And um, I was put in contact with him and my first impression of him, he talks like a producer, right? Da, 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 da. And I've seen through this whole thing. Most producers talk like me and you, right? Like they right. don't talk like that. 1950s stereotype of a cigar <laughs> chomping like a salesman or some shit yeah. Yeah. yeah um some people do like i've seen that more with agents and even 100%. agents not so much like even agents not you're more likely to see like them talk like anna gasteyer's agent from maria bamford show <laughs> lady dynamite but i digress um <laughs> they good show by the way um so he watched the movie and he got back to me but here's the thing he was clearly texting during my movie because he was providing live feedback while he was at 2 a.m right right like live feedback about it you like put your fucking phone away and pay attention to the movie put your fucking phone away and watch the movie is like geez so like what a concept but i think that's also a little bit of you know a lot of people are going to be on your phone in any movie and it's like well i'm not making my movie for those people right i'm the worst Second, person to be around for that if anyone has their phone on a movie i'm like put your phone away like i'm such a dick to people yeah <laughs> but it depends right like a lot of times i'll watch movies with friends where we've all seen it a billion times right like yeah me and my friend kyle we put on fargo as a party movie because we both <laughs> like it and he's the same one whose kid paw patrol blah, blah, blah. Not like fargo my god yeah well, he so not a great party movie, but for me and him, great party. Like we're we're say, oh, son of a Gunderson, oh yeah, like so <laughs> stupid. So, um, anyways, this producer guy, he finished the movie. He messaged me, and he kind of broke my heart a little. He's like, you know, I think experimental cinema's dead. It's all on the internet now. If this was the early '90s, I would have picked this up movie right away. But this movie, I don't think it's going to be a financial success unless you, you know, put some more mainstream stuff, particularly at the end and the beginning. He also made the suggestion, and he actually did, let's give him credit, he had some good feedback. Cut it down to 100 minutes or got into a festival. We did, right? But even on that end, I said, do you think if I kept it experimental but got it down to 100 minutes... I could get into a tier one festival like Fantasia. And he's like, I think you might, might be able to, I don't think anyone's going to buy it. Wrong. <sighs> Wrong. Yeah. And, um, so anyways, um, that was heartbreaking, but Hey, we got into Fantasia. The rest is history. It's funny, Kyle. I'm like, I've talked to like, I've, been fortunate enough to get to talk to some of my favorite horror directors like Romero, like Carpenter. Like I've gotten to work with some of those guys and all of them have the same story of making a movie that everyone told them they were doing it wrong. It wasn't going to work. It was going to flop. Da, da, da. And some of them yeah. ended up being night of the living dead. The thing like, you know, yeah. like it's, it's just, 
you have to, I think if there's one thing I, I have learned about the film business is like get feedback, get opinions, and then also be prepared to throw them away because ultimately nobody really knows anything anyway. It- that was a hard thing too, because as previously discussed, I was starved for feedback. Yeah. Right. But then maybe I was, you know, when you're hungry and you go grocery shopping, maybe it was that, you know. You end up buying like 16 different types of candy because <laughs> you're not sure which one you want. Yeah. 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 No, it's true. I mean, it's it, it, when I was watching the movie, I, you know, it was kind of a thing where for me, it was easy early on to surrender myself to the tone of the movie because I could tell that I was in capable hands. And I think for an audience, that's part of it. You, you, you look to the, if, if you, if you think this way, I guess, but, but subconsciously you're, this is part of what you do with any form of art is you're, you, especially movies, you decide early on if it's connecting with you. And if it does, then you'd surrender any stuff you have of like, Oh, that, I don't really think it would happen like that. Or the suspension of disbelief stuff. Right. And with this movie, to me, it was like, okay, this movie is like more about how it's making me feel. Which is a very and, and the things that it was making me feel were very primal. They were there was something much more yeah. uh, lizard brain than it was intellectual. I wasn't that was always the intention. I wanted a movie to be about feelings and not about text and story. Because that's what movies are. If you want just story and text, like pick up a book. Yeah. Like that like movies are about watch a mammoth play or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, watch and even mammoth plays are kind of about feelings. Like that's that's like that's the end game, right? It's a lot of dialogue to get you to the feelings, right? Yeah. And not that books aren't about feelings, but it's like it's not a book. It's not a textbook. It's a movie. It's about feelings. Yeah. And it, like, you know, when I was watching, I was it was curious to me that there was moments where you had subtitles that I, that I thought, what what guided you to use subtitles in that way rather than just letting us hear, you know, even if they were off screen, letting us hear the kids? Um, so a lot of that was, so people have asked me about analog horror and I'm certainly not as into analog horror as I like just because like I'm not into anything as much as I would like to be because I don't have time. I'm so... But I do like a lot of analog horror, and that was something utilized a lot in analog horror, like, because the nature of it, it, the audio would be so distorted that, but they would want to have titles. And I thought that would be so neat to have stuff where we understand someone's talking, but we don't understand them, but we do understand them, right? Right. It was a fun, like, that's in the script, right? I wanted to play with that. And I think it's interesting, too, to look at from the perspective of if you think classically going out through the history of horror, televisions can be used mm-hmm. to create great menace. And they do in your movie. They do it yeah. in Poltergeist and Nightmare on Elm. The Ring. The yeah. Ring, right. Like, what is it you think about TVs that allow them to be an object of menace? Well, first of all, they're ubiquitous in the 20th and 21st century or even screens, right? What are we doing right now? Um, that's like, that's a big part of it. And it's interesting. We only used practical lighting for this movie outside of the pitch black scenes. We had a sun gun with a blue filter. So a lot of the scenes in the movie were just using a television as the lighting source for an entire house or area. And the great thing was 
coming back to the technical because cameras have gotten so good we can do that now yeah. we can light yeah. entire scenes based around a television it was in, it, this is me being very i don't know like film scholarly but i was thinking it's a funny thing in the movie that really the only window we see in the movie is the tv and when you think yeah. about the TV, oh it, yeah, it's, had, yeah you know certainly it's maybe i'm being a little too i don't know but 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 that's no no that's that's an amazing elegant metaphor um because it's you know that that's it's one of the, the the things i thought was so cool in the movie was you know that the, the thing of like all the windows were gone and like you know and, and and i don't know whether you used you know just camera angles to hide the windows in the home or like how did content you content aware you what content in Photoshop and After Effects. That's how we did it. We used Adobe Content Aware to remove oh, okay. it, and we had to do extensive tests for that beforehand to make sure it would work. And got it. Yeah, Adobe Adobe's the unsung hero of some of this. <laughs> I bet it's unsung hero of a lot of independent films for sure. A little bit of it. Some though. Sometimes, sometimes it was yeah. Let's just darken this hallway so we can't see the door. But a like lot of much, it when it did you fun. shoot mostly at night or did you did you just blacken the windows? And shoot we shot completely during the day in the summer. We had to black wrap the fuck out of that house. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um. The the whole thing with the kind of scan lines on the tv was an interesting thing to me because it's like okay that's interesting so by leaving the scan lines in it's a reminder at least to some people that this is the view of a camera that we're seeing not the view of a character yeah. or the view of like an omnipotent kind of you know sort of a god perspective that a lot of movies have this is the view yeah. of a camera what was the decision that prompted you to leave it to have that scan line oh, thing on the that TV? that was accident see a lot of these things there's a lot of things where people will ask me and it's like, oh, like the interviewer will be like, oh, I never thought that's so bright. Some of it is just coincidences and like, like filmmakers aren't always looking at every angle. That was just practical. That was, I think, basically the shutter speed angle that we were able to light for both scenes. Right. Like, did it, did you think? But that's an interesting thought. Yeah. That's how a camera reacts to a television. Like, did you, did you, did you look at it and go, oh shit, we need to get a sync box or did you go, fuck it, we'll just, we'll just leave it? No, like cameras now, they have settings in it to compensate for sync to an extent and it's still difficult lighting the TV versus the area we're around and, yeah. but it wasn't that big of an issue outside of getting, for the most part, getting rid of a lot of the very heavy flicker. Yeah. And but yeah, I always wanted it to be prominent. This is a television with scan lines, right? Yeah. So. Are you a smoker or an ex-smoker? Yes, that's Nicorette. So I'm an ex-smoker. I was just thinking, um, I'm like, God, I. You, <laughs> you knew it was Nicorette because I'm not treating it like regular gum. No, um, I, because so I, yeah, just went, um, I just went through it. That's why I knew it when I saw it. I'm still on so i've been on nicorette for coming on four years maybe it's 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 such but, a uh, man my yeah like my and you're not supposed to do that no but, my struggle yeah. with not smoking is like that's something i should make a fucking horror movie about um uh <laughs> did you did you shot list this movie or did you just get into yeah very heavily yeah. very heavily very every we planned for this like we were 
climbing Mount Everest. Because a big thing too is with child actors, you can't leave anything to, oh, but what if we do this on the day, right? Because you can't ethically have a kid for too long on a set. Yeah. Right. So I plan seeing this movie and thinking, oh, they went into a space and just got a bunch of different coverage and no, you know what I mean? That's that's the annoying thing. Like we actually those parts literally like we had a whole ballet based around. There are a handful of uh, just get a shot of that, but like way more. And a lot of the stuff where I was like, just get a shot of that just to have it never ended up in the movie. Right. Yeah. Were you at all anxious about working with kid actors because of all the the legendary stories of working? Terrified, with yeah. terrified. I was shake like I was shaking when I first did it because I don't work with I haven't worked with that many actors in general outside of in college. I had the privilege of working with this great actress, uh, lo- local at the time named Leah Beaudry, who's had a very successful. Um, working actor career outside of that she was in a few fitness ads in toronto um she's done a lot of commercial work like there's been a lot of times where i've seen commercials and i'm like i know her she was in a very beautiful short film i did in college she's had talking parts on yellow jackets um great show but uh yeah um but um outside of that not a lot of work with actors a lot of work with amateurs which working with amateurs can actually be a great baptism of fire like i saw the fablemans with my my family great movie to see as a surreal as a filmmaker to see like while your movie's picking up with your family um but there's a scene in it where baby spielberg is is talking to his friend and he's trying to direct him and the friend asks a very reasonable question like wait do you i think it's something like do you want me to go over here or go over here and spielberg's like and that happens right where someone asks you a reasonable question and you don't know the answer in the moment and you panic and you think they're gonna be like the set's gonna come up against me and they're gonna be like you don't know what you're doing and leave right like there's so the kids so we had planned very heavily to make it as kid friendly as possible not take up too much of their time and importantly simple directions go to the hallway do this end of the hallway come back come into the room sit down all of the directions were like this and all the dialogue we'll do is adr right and i can line I think at the time Lucas was five or six. Oh wow! And Dolly, I think was seven or eight. Oh, her name was Dolly. That's adorable. Yeah, Yeah, Dolly. Yeah. Um. So, I we had planned for it heavily, but still, I was okay. So over caffeinated, underslept because I'm doing (laughs) it. I'm shooting my movie. It was the first day of shooting, so I have the kids in the hallway and. I'm showing Lucas like, so here's a tape recorder. This was a toy I played with when I was little. I want you to carry to the end of the hallway. Dolly, I want you to come out. Tape recorder's not working. And I was shaking. So I said, action. They just did the scene. And then they came back to the end of the hall. And I was like, oh, they, they just did it. And then all the anxiety just melted away. I'm like, can we do that one more time? They did it better this time. 
And I was like, but I have, I've worked with kid actors. Easy. I, yeah. I have a theory about kid actors and I might be wrong, but, but this has just sort of been my experience is like kids are used to make believe and that's all that movies yeah, are. So they, they, I was so happy someone on Twitter the other day finally said, you know, people aren't talking about how great the performances are. And I'm like, thank you. The kids and the grownups are amazing in this. It's like, it's like they had seen every Cassavetes movie and just knew it (laughs) intuitive. It was so easy working with them. I think that's a testament how good they were is because those performances are so, so not big or broad or performancey none of yeah. them, none of them draw attention to themselves in that way and they shouldn't not in this movie mm-hmm. so yeah i think that's a testament there were it. there was a little bit of a shortfall with i did for some of it have to use stock of child screaming stock of child crying for for some of it because like we ran out of time and also like I, like how long am i gonna have to tell this kid okay scream <laughs> like you've never yeah, yeah, yeah. but outside of that like all the dialogue all it's it's beautiful the, i think there's a little bit of their actual screaming in it but shooting it some of it's hazy but did you now did you actually watch all those old 1930s cartoons as a kid or did you just put oh them yeah i was like did you just put them because they're public domain or did you actually watch them it was it was all of the above. Right. There was a uh, tape we had that my mom got or dad got in a bargain bin that had a, a lot of the cartoons that me and my sister watched a lot that are now in the movie. Somewhere in Dreamland, that uh, Coach for Cinderella, and a handful of other ones that I'm like that are that has to go into my movie. So. There's something intrinsically creepy about those cartoons anyway. I don't know why. They're just Yeah. But like I didn't feel that like I felt a little like these are so different and old. Like I intrinsically knew this well, is not funny, the Lion King. It's in the 90s, but it still mm-hmm. doesn't feel like the 90s to me. It feels like the 70s, which now that I've mm-hmm. talked to you and I understand how much you love the 70s, kind of makes sense. Yeah. So did you not set the movies in the 70s just because set deck would be more of a pain in the ass? Is that was that the A reason? little bit of that, but also I'm like okay, I want to do the the movie to be like I was that age in that exact year. Right. It will be hard to set deck for the 70s. Um and at some point I said okay, this is a contradiction. I'm shooting a movie in the style of the 70s, but it's set in the 90s will people will that get in the way and for a handful of people a very small minority i did who frankly i don't think would have liked the movie anyways no but outside of that i'm like no let's do it like this movie is a ton of contradictions what's another one this feels right to me this is the movie i want to see not the movie i i I think others want to see this is the movie i want to see and i want to make and you'll be surprised how often, like, what you want to see and what you want to make a general audience wants to see. So. Now, like, I, I, I've heard you talking about that in other, other interviews, and I think that's interesting because I think that's something, for me as a filmmaker, I've gone up and down about. I've made some films where I'm like, all right, this is something I'm really passionate about. And it resonated with with some people, and some people hated it. But because it was so personal to me, I took it really personal when people hated it. Then I've made some movies yeah. more commercial, and I but and more people liked them in terms of I think probably a broad, but not necessarily loved 
Exactly. Right? And I cared like, less what people thought because I, it wasn't me in it now. It was just, I was a technician. Yeah. I did a job. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think that's the difference. I think if you make a movie just that you think other people want to see, it's hard to get your heart in that movie. Yeah. And like everything everywhere all at once is a beautiful, like, exception and marrying of that clearly it was yeah. very personal for them and everyone else reacted super personal and I also for that. Think people yeah don't understand how handmade that movie was like it wasn't like some yeah. fucking huge studio you, those guys did a lot of they had like five people that did the effects on that movie yeah like it, it wasn't some huge which is getting more and more common with effects right? i know like like yeah. it's just so funny because in the era of like you know there's a lot of people that I particularly people that are sort of horror fans who are like, Oh, Marvel movies and are so fatigued by that superhero. Kind yeah. Of um, I don't know where you land on that, but, um, but you know, my, my boyfriend really likes Marvel. Even he's getting tired of it, but if a Marvel movie's good, it's good. And I'll watch it. Right. I, but, yeah, I think like winter soldier. People, I loved winter. Soldier, yeah. Which felt or like I a- liked, which, what was which the felt like a 70s I, Robert Redford movie to me, and he was in it, so that made sense. But Or even, like, this is basically the same thing. Like, DC, I, I went into The Batman thinking, like, I'm not going to like this. I love that movie. And it, I, yeah, I just loved it. Yeah, that's I like, if, if, if Fincher did a Batman movie, that's what it was. Yeah, like, yeah, and, um, yeah. But, yeah, people are fatigued of stuff. It, it's the, again, coming back to the 70s, uh, they were coming off of, the 60s and and um or let's say night of the living dead the whole new hollywood starting bonnie and clyde da, yep. Da, da. Yep. people were sick of cinema cinemascope technicolor they wanted to get gritty they wanted to get something they wouldn't get from a tv yeah. and it turns out it's sex violence and swearing and realness right yeah. like that's yeah. something you could see in a movie you couldn't see on a TV at the time because it's TV, right? It's funny because I had the movie on and um, my dog was sitting up in the couch with me. My dog was fucking freaked out by your movie. He kept oh, looking up oh. and just going mm, at the TV. The cats were party to some rough cuts and they were right. Like, Yeah, my dog w- was not. He was unsettled by the movie. And I think, that, again, oh. because it... it it is operating both on a sound design level and like if you have epilepsy, you probably shouldn't watch your movie. Like it's probably not great for. Yeah, people. I don't know if we've put it through an epilepsy test, and I was concerned about that from day one. Right. Yeah. How like that's a thing I'm very. That's why I really I did the closed captions myself, mm-hmm. and I was so relieved. A deaf horror fan on Twitter said the captions were great. Apparently, there's been sync issues with it spoiling um, jump scares. So I'm going to have a talk with Shutter about that tomorrow um, and see if we can rectify that. But I was so relieved. A a deaf person said, oh, the captions were great. And that was, I really wanted to do them as professionally. I read up on how to do captions properly beforehand. And this is a really challenging one because there's a whole thing about having appropriate captions for when someone's off screen and we don't hear them we have to have like their name like kaylee da, 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 kevin yeah. Da, da, da. yeah it it was a challenge so yeah. it's interesting too because in like like reading some of the press but, oh wait wait i forgot to say um epilepsy i don't know if the film has gone through an epilepsy test but 
And I was concerned about that. But then I rewatched Poltergeist for the umpteenth time and thought this movie is way strobier than even mine. Poltergeist so got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought so. It's like a glove, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's funny because a lot of the comparisons I've read or people have talked about for Skin Marink have been much more abstract movies. And I was like, I don't know. There's a lot of poltergeist to me. There's a ton. There's actually a, a deleted shot. Um, kind of deleted scene, actually. It's one of the true, like, this is a scene I took out where in the shot list, I describe uh, Kaylee's action as she puts her hands up a la Carol Ann. Like when she puts her hands on the TV. Yeah, yeah. You thought it was too mm. on the nose? No, I I thought that particular scene, I won't get into the scene, but I'm like, it's better if just nothing happens here and we cut to the next part. Right. Um, yeah. And one thing that's, that I've noticed in some of the press around the movie is, is the movie being sort of positioned by some critics and some writers as being part of sort of a, a queer horror wave. What do you think about sort of that label on the movie or for you as a filmmaker, how do you feel about sort of being described in that, in that context? So first off, I was over the moon when people started comparing it to we're all going to the world's fair. And then Jane had tweeted about the movie and it felt like, Oh God, like, Oh, how cool. Right. But in the same vein, I don't know I think it's almost a new weird queer wave where queer filmmakers have reached a point where they don't feel the need to overtly make a film queer. We can maybe have that um, as a part of our feelings and reasoning, but the Outwaters, it's the same thing. That movie isn't super overtly queer. We're all going to the World's Fair is a bit different because there's certain things as far as uh, gender dys- dysphoria that are 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 fairly heavily touched yeah, on, at, at least trans, in the trans aspect. Of yeah, that. yeah, at least yeah. in um, subtext with that film. Right. But that whole movie, though, it, it's its own beautiful thing. But yeah, it's it's maybe it's just a weird coincidence maybe not that like my movie the outwaters and we're all going to the world's fair just took off and I don't another know, int- I don't I don't know the outwaters is that is that out yet or is that still being fresh? um it's coming out in theaters i think in about a week okay. i actually met robbie the director in la and we had dinner and so his movie's going to be on screenbox Go see it. I've seen it twice now. We actually did a filmmaker to filmmaker for the New York Times, which that was fucking cool. I was right? going to reach out to him to be on the show, but he has no social media existence that I know. He's on Twitter. Is he on Twitter? Okay. Yeah, he's on Twitter. I yeah, told you I'm terrible. At social media. And his movie has his own Twitter account, okay. too. I'll, I'll, but I'll uh, one. His thing's going to be on Screenbox. And it's interesting. I said to the Shutter people, I'm like, is it okay if he comes to the dinner while the movie's playing? And they're like, yeah. And I'm, it's, but his movie's on Screenbox. And they're like, we're, we're grown ups. Like, we, <laughs> like, we can handle it. It's okay. <laughs> we can handle it. Yeah. And we had a great dinner. Yeah. I think it's funny, though, just, you know, there's something about contextualizing 
you know, I, when I read stuff about this, you know, this, 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 what, what I, someone else described it as a queer horror wave. It's not necessarily the wording I would use, but, but I was like, well, I've, uh, to me, horror has always been, as far as filmmakers go, the kind of island of misfit. Yeah. You can go back to like the Bride of Frankenstein and stuff like yeah, that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Whale, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, whale. Yeah. Queer representation in horror has a long history. And so, to, you know, and, and if you look at something like Bride of Frankenstein, it doesn't have overtly, I mean, it's got a camp quality, I suppose, at points, but, yeah. you know, I just, it's, I think I think I think unrequited love a little bit in it. Yeah. it like I would say and not that that's an intrinsically queer thing, but I I think we maybe feel it more because a majority of the population that we might find attractive might not necessarily reciprocate because yeah. you know and also another weird thing about this was being interviewed it's I it's been interesting to see how much of the horror community is queer like every other person that's interviewed me has been queer like i that's interesting well i didn't even know it it was funny because i didn't know when i asked you to do this show or anything but that you that you were gay and then like this morning i my husband was like reading because he'll read up about who i have coming on this show i don't like to Uh do too much of that because i don't want to get like thrown off my wave by what other people are writing yeah but he was like, did you know that Kyle's gay? And I was like, no, but like, uh, that's interesting. Like, because I do think it's, it, it is undeniably happening. There is more, but, but to me is, is that just because times have changed? And like, when yeah. I, when I was in my early twenties and I first started making films, I didn't come out until I was in my mid twenties. Cause it was a different time and it was harder. And it was, I think, yeah. I think that has changed. And so, you know, and I think that's great, but, but. I hope people can also recognize that that horror has always been the kind of island of misfit toys where everyone was welcome. Yeah. The representation for women and allowing women a sexuality is was in horror way before anyone else was doing it. And I think that's why I'm always so proud to be kind of part of that club, of the horror club is because I think we yeah. the, the horror always has been ahead of that curve. Or like just seeing with like like black people like seeing jordan peele i'm so happy that finally like a black filmmaker is making really great like like top tier and it's 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 a cast of of black people especially with the history of like the black guy being killed first right which coming back to romero like i was so i cheered for the first time when i saw dawn of the dead and it's like the black guy isn't dying this time awesome night living dead and that black guys the heroes of black yeah he was the last survivor though which was and there's also i saw that in the theater for the first time with a bunch of friends it was a uh the movie theaters opening after this wave of covid night of living dead is playing and i said let's go to night of living dead because that's in public domain so all that money is going to the theater and we have to support them right yeah and it was interesting i could tell with the audience watching it him and the antagonistic um relationship he has with the dad guy yeah it's there's a subtext of this guy's a fucking racist right yeah 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 and also coming back to the tying in with queer coming back to the way i can't be a part of these fan sections of the internet anymore on lg uh the facebook group lgbtq horror nerds 
I've been waiting for this validation from day one. Someone posted a picture of me from Twitter and said, like, this, the, the director of Skinner and kind of a cutie. And that was the validation I wanted from day <laughs> one. And I was so happy. But then I looked in the comments and it was like, it was so mixed because it's like, yeah, he's cute. Fuck his movie, though. And like a lot of those comments. And it's like, even oh, like, I can't right. even, but okay. like, hey, they said I was cute. So whatever. Yeah, it's called chop that up as a win. At least you got there is a compliment there as well. Like, yeah, right. Like I should only be like, there's so many things where it's like, just take the win. Right. Yeah, totally. Like the New Yorker wrote a bad review and it's like the New York Times loved it, though. Yeah. But the New Yorker wrote a bad review. And I was like, you know, like five months ago, you would have been thrilled that the New Yorker even watched your movie. Well, right? and like, you know what, man? From that, that standpoint, mostly critically, you've done really well. Most of like, yeah, the and so that's all this whole experience, too, and talking with a lot of film critics has made me have an empathy and understanding of them that I didn't before. Like, um, you know, their job is to say, I like this movie or I didn't, here's why. And I was talking with this one film critic. She was one of the first people to get a screener and be like, holy shit, Rachel. Shit, she writes for Exclaim. I think Rachel Ho. Uh, it's hard because there's another film critic in Toronto who has a similarish name. Um, but she, I had a talk with her recently and I said, so when my next movie comes out and you don't like it, don't be afraid to write a bad review. I can take it. I've had my cake. And she said, you know, whenever I see a Canadian indie movie and I don't like it, I just don't publish a review because like what's like what good is that doing for a tiny movie right i i have a same policy like i've been asked because of the show and whatever to write yeah. reviews for for magazines and i always say no because i'm like how do i do what i do or i like a filmmaker or an actor someone sits with me and i i sometimes on the show it gets pretty personal it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. conversation that you and i are having is not you know a 10 minute reporter in a, in a panel type conversation if i'm the guy that gave your movie a bad review this conversation is gonna have a different tone you know what i mean like yeah it's a conflict I and it's it's hard and like also like I, the woman, Justine Smith, who selected the movie for Fantasia, who I kind of a little bit owe all of this to, she, um, she also writes reviews for Cult Montreal, this, um, really good blog out of Montreal. I love Montreal. She hated, I love Montreal. She hated Avatar. And I could read between the lines before she posted the review that she was afraid of posting the review because she knew she was going to get a ton of hate for it. For not liking a movie. Like, <laughs> a, an incredibly successful movie. And it's like... And, like, I read her review. I haven't seen the Avatar Way of the Water yet. But I'm like, like that seems correct. Like, I'm, maybe I'll like Avatar, but it's like... She had this great example of, yeah, it looks gorgeous, but just read her review. It's a great review. But right? there's, there's nothing in the end. There's there's nothing under the hood kind of a thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, like, so, you know, we were just talking about how the critics kind of really responded well to the movie, but you've also talked a bit about kind of the divisiveness of, of mm. the, the horror fan response. But I'm, I'm also assuming you expected that. I did a little bit, but not as much like I expected it, but I kind of hoped I had maybe a certified fresh rating. And this whole time we were just, once we went below 75%, we were always just below the bar of getting certified fresh. And I wouldn't have mind a certified fresh. And it's a hard thing too, because coming out of this discussion about, you know, film critics are people too. If they hate a movie, that's their opinion. It's subjective, but it's a little bit, I'm very thin skinned. I made something super personal and it's hard to not take it personally. Cause I take everything in life personally. Right. And with exception, right. So most of the film critics who wrote about it and didn't like it fair, right. That's their, that's their feeling about it. I've been taken care of. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And in the same, the, but there's exceptions. The guy from the New Yorker, I didn't even read the review, which I know is shitty, but I, when it was the guy at the New Yorker, it just felt like oh, a poor made a movie. Oh, how quaint, right? <laughs> and I don't know if that's the case. I don't know his background. I Wikipedia'd him and I get the sense that maybe he grew up a little bit more privileged than me. And like, there's things that like, even these film critics, if you're going to be obje- like objective, it it's hard, right? Like I'm sure. So my assistant director passed away shortly after the movie was done and he was also a friend of mine and yeah, the film that is dedicated hurts a li- to him right yeah joshua bookhalter yeah. and like it it none of these film critics are, are trying to be like oh i want to shit on the movie that your 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 deceased friend helps you make right like that's certainly not what they're doing but it's i take i take things personally that's just the way i am but if i wasn't a person who was super sensitive and didn't take things personally i don't know if we get a movie like skin and Marink. it's funny like this is this sounds like a bullshit story but it's a true story i did this movie and it was a really kind of weird movie it was a very personal movie for me and part of the movie had to do with a character it's kind of a horror it's a horror film noir so it's very different and there's a character in the story who's kind of this bro-y kind of like ladies man character who ends up throughout the movie he he through the antagonism of the villain who realizes that he's a closeted gay man kind of pulls him kicking and screaming out of the closet and there's this sort oh, of wow and it's it's is there a male femme fatale yes basically nice yeah. oh i'd love yeah. i'd love to see that yeah. and the movie had a when it came out i had people who were like who totally got what i was doing we're like, oh, it's Chinatown meets, you know, a slasher film. And then there were people oh. who were like, what the fuck is this? It was one or the other. That was it. There was no kind of like, oh, it's all right. Which I think as a filmmaker, you kind of prefer that. If people are like, yeah, it's all right. Then I'm like, great. I made milk toast, like some fucking boring. Movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. But this one kid came up to me at a festival. Aww. And I was so bummed because he was, I think this kid was about 14. And he, he came up to me and I was so bummed because we had just gotten a review back from, it was a major publication, the Toronto Star or something like that. And it mm. wasn't very good. And I was so disappointed because it was like, oh. that's home, my home turf. Like it was, yeah. You know, and I really wanted it to be embraced by the, the, the community I'm from. And 
but this kid came up to me and he said, did you made the movie? And I said, yeah. And he said, can I, t- can I talk to you about it? And I went, yeah, sure. And I said, go ahead without me. And so I stopped with this yeah. young man. I talked to him for a minute and he said, I think after seeing this, I'm, I'm going to come out to my parents because, oh. and I was like, I remember like getting very oh. emotional about that. And and for me, I, I, I totally forgot about that shitty review. Yeah. After Cause I was like, if, so ma- if this movie helped like one kid be like, yeah, you know what I mean? Then fuck the, the fucking review. Like, you know what I mean? And I think that's, that's a strong example of it, but, but I think that's kind of the power of the medium in some level. Yeah, there were so many people who sent me fan art early on. And it's like, I, like, what more could I ask for as a filmmaker? People, this one woman painted, painted like a real picture. Not that the, not that like the digital art, that's amazing. Don't get me yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. But she painted a picture of the dollhouse and she sent it to me. And I burst into tears and I responded, that's the dollhouse me and my sister played with when I was little. <laughs> and at, at the ACE screening in LA, um, the, the Skin and Marink experience, which that was amazing. Oh my God, people from the Canadian consulate came. David Lynch sent me a fucking box like of like merch and signed a copy of Eraserhead. Awesome. Like, I know, like, but people from the Canadian consulate came and I'm like, my country is recognizing me. But after the Q&A was done with Patton Oswalt, who I'm actually like a huge fucking fan of Patton Oswalt. He's great. I used to be able to quote his bits verbatim. A lineup of people lined up, including a bunch of kids. I signed a phone, um, did all these autographs, took pictures. Like, it's, it's when a kid comes up to you and says, but also now it's like, I'm a role model now. Right. Yeah, and I yeah. have to be wary of that. Don't, don't say anything mean on Twitter. Don't engage in the negative discourse because I'm role modeling behavior. Well, and also just like, I don't know about you, but like, for me, I think I get, I got to a point too, as, as a person, not just as a professional where I was like, I don't have any fun ragging on people's work or like, it's way more fun to yeah. somebody's work than it is to shit on it. Like I just, yeah, I'd really much rather like, spend my social media time. being like, you got to check this out. It's awesome. Then be like, that was shit. But more so role modeling. Like if people on Twitter are shitting on your movie, don't engage. Yeah. Right. Like what good is that going to do? Right. Like it's not going to help anyone. I came a little bit close the other day where like someone defended my movie and I said, thank you. Right. And then I was like, okay, that's as far as I can go. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. really can't just, well, and also it's a little hole. like, like, and also like that space is for the fans to talk. Right. Like don't interview, yeah, you know, the this director in there putting his foot. Down. Yeah. <laughs> like I saw there's a skin and subreddit and I'm like, I can't, I can look can't join or comment right because yeah, a yeah. lot of it again is like fan theories i can't say anything about the theories because no, then that's interceding it's one of those things like, where like i was thinking at the end of the movie that like i'm sure all kinds of fans are going to ask you about the monster or the sort of presence whatever it is and i was like i wonder if like i had that with a, a similar experience with the film that i did and and the the truth in that scenario, even though I never told anyone in this, and I can tell say it now because it's so long ago, was I never mm-hmm. even decided for myself what the thing was. It didn't matter. It was you never saw it. It was off screen. It was it was alluded to. It was a presence, but to me, I was like, it, it's not. A, that's all it is. It, it doesn't need to be any more yeah. than that for it to 
fulfilled its function in 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 in, in the yeah. story. When people come up to you and ask you like, "What is the monster?" Or whatever, like, do you always just say it's whatever you want it to be? Like, what's kind of your so, approach to that? Interestingly, a lot of people haven't asked me those questions because I think they don't want to know. They yeah. they want it to be personal. A handful of people have said, and I've had to say, "I'm sorry, I don't know," because only you know, right? Yeah. And most people are very receptive to that. In my mind, I had a vivid idea of what the monster is. Um. But I won't tell anyone, right? I want people to get... It's not my movie anymore. It's your movie, yeah, right? Yeah. And also, I will say one kind of interesting thing. So people have had all these different names or iterations of what they call the monster. Some people have called it the Skinnamarink. Some people have called it the demon, the entity, the presence. In the original script, it is simply referred to as voice in the dark. Right. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. 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 So. Totally. Um well and kind of in wrapping up here, I want to know like, so this has been like a ride for you, right? I mean, you've had yeah. ups and downs and it's you've talked about how personal this is to the when you look to the future now and what you know, the the next film you make or maybe even the film after that, what do you think that this experience is kind of above all else showed you about your the beginnings of your journey as a filmmaker it showed me everything this film felt like the most comprehensive crash course on what a filmmaker's feature debut can go through so i you know i've a few times been overwhelmed over the past month and almost had panic attacks like the other night i was i got dinner got my food ready my boyfriend put on Game of Thrones and I sat down and just nothing to do with the situation, just the overwhelm of everything. I'm like, I have to go. I have to go be in the other room just because every it felt like everyone in the world wanted to talk to me. And he came in to check. He's like, are you OK? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm just overwhelmed by all skin and marink <laughs> right now. I need just to have quiet and dark and no Game of Thrones. <laughs> or House of the Dragon. And I said the other day, you know, I've been through a culture shock. Everything a filmmaker would want to happen to them that you dream about happening to you has happened to me in the past two months. Yeah. And with the exception of winning an Oscar or meeting David Lynch. And then ironically... I got half of those. David Lynch's people sent me a box with merch and a signed copy. So I got half of that, right? And then my executive producer, Edmund Rotea, went to LA when we played at the Ace. And he went to the Academy Award Museum. And they have a thing where you can hold a fake Oscar and they'll film a fake acceptance speech for you. So we got that too. So. <laughs> but yeah, it taught me if it like, but also I'm now starting to get the uh, getting in my head about what if, what if the next one isn't good? What if people don't like the next one? What if I'm a one movie wonder, you know? And I don't know. I had a friend who's, who made a very successful 
I won't say who this person is, but but they made a very successful, very big first movie, and then their next movie didn't have that reception. And I remember he Aww. was, and he was talking to me about that experience, and he was upset and understandably, and and I was like sitting there thinking, if you get one, it's don't be too upset. Because yeah. you know how many people don't even get one? You know how many people never even get that yeah. one? Food? You know what I mean? For I want to be Panos Cosmatos, right? Like his first one. <laughs> it's almost like a shitty thing that my first one was so well received. Because Panos, it was just right. His movie had a decent first reception beyond the Black Rainbow. And that was like not that hard to go all up from there. And his second one was Mandy, right? Mine, it feels like my first one was Mandy, and like I don't know. You don't know that yet. You you know yeah. nobody does, and I think it's I think it's from talking to you, from seeing the film. Like I think you made a movie that took a lot of courage to make. I think it's because, and I think you're brave for doing this as your first. Thank movie you. I think for a first time feature filmmaker, the temptation is always I've got to make something that 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 is a product that people will want to buy. So I get to do another one. I think a lot of first time filmmakers think that way. And I think the fact that you went, fuck it, I'm going to make the movie I want to make shows that you are the real deal. So thank you um, so much. I don't think you should be too worried. Okay. (laughs) thank you. You're welcome. Um, On that note, can you tell me a bit about. Anything down the line or anything you're mulling over? Or- I had two ideas. I fell out of love with them because I made the mistake of telling people. Yeah. And that, maybe that I'll maybe I'll circle back to them. And then I have another idea, which I haven't told anyone. And a few people have told me, don't tell anyone, right? Just until it's you finished writing it, right? But um, the unfortunate thing is I haven't had time to focus on the second one as much as I would have liked to because Skinnamarink has taken over my life. Hopefully now that it's on Shudder and basically all I have to deal with is a handful of things like going to a horror con and like maybe the odd interview with uh, Poland or other countries it's, it's playing in. Outside of that, maybe I can finally have some quiet and start writing movie number two. Well, when untitled, you do, untitled Kyle Edward Ball project. <laughs> when you do, and then you make the movie, can you come back and we can talk about that one? Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming and talking with me, man. I really thank you. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Kevin Lane spill your guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane spill your guts was created by Kevin Lane. Produced by Jason Hill and edited by Justin Beam. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing that you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, on Instagram by searching one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. So post, comment, share, like, but don't forget, there's still no substitute for good old fashioned word of mouth. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. 
your friends, your family, your co-workers, whomever, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>